you kiddos, y'all go to your class. It's the last Wednesday night study. Y'all make it a good one. Get them learnt up. Welcome. If this is your first time here, it'll also be your last time before summer. Uh, this will be uh, our last study before we, we take a summer break um, in, uh, in the summer. <laughs> and the reason we do that, um, it, it may seem sort of, um, you turn that up a little bit, it may seem... <laughs> It may seem a bit counterintuitive because you may think, well, I have more time in the summer. Why would you not do the study during the summer, but you do it during the school year when we have far less time? And the reason we do that is to sort of throttle back in some sense in the summer to hopefully free you up for some time to engage other people, to have a free night of the week, to, um, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so the idea there is that it's a little break, and then when August hits, we... We hit it with everything else and, and go back to our normal schedule. So um, this will be our last study. We'll be in Ezekiel. I'm going to pray. And before I pray, I want you to know two things. One, um, after using the word whore like 273 times in last week's study, um, we don't have to use that word tonight. And I'm thankful for that because the third vision is far less troubling <laughs> than the second vision in Ezekiel. If you weren't here, um, uh, the recording is online and I'm sure it's exciting. Um, and then the second thing is, after I pray, I want to take a few minutes to recount and hear some things we've gleaned um, since going into the book of Psalms in January. So I'm going to pray, and then we will finish our last study. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you very much for um, how good you are. I'm, I'm thankful, Lord, that um, for the better part of five months now, um, we've been able to get together almost every Wednesday and continue to work our way through the Old Testament. Lord, what a privilege it is to have the Word breathed out by you that we can hold in our hands and read. And what an what a amazing, remarkable, um, divine reality we have that the Spirit would give us understanding as we read it. And so we humble ourselves before you tonight and we thank you um, for the um, encouragement that we get in the Word, for, for the warning that we get from the Word, for the admonishment we get in the Word, for the direction, for the training in righteousness that we get in the Word. I'm thankful that, that you allow us to engage such things. And my hope tonight is that we would be encouraged as we consider the last vision of Ezekiel. My hope is that after such a, a dark study last week, such a difficult study last week, that we would be encouraged at this final vision that you bless Ezekiel and the people with even while they are in Babylonian exile. I'm thankful that you are a God who is not limited or constrained by our, our circumstances, by geography, um, but that you are with your people at all times, that you never leave us or forsake us, and in that we are blessed immensely. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before diving into part three, I want to take a few minutes to recount the deeds of the Lord. Since January, we've worked our way through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. 
And so I want to just ask you, what are some notable things that you've taken with you from that time in the Word? What are some notable things? Anything, just throw them out there. And if there are none, it means I have failed miserably, so no, no pressure there. Feel free to consult your notes if you have a notebook. Sometimes it's helpful to stir. Lord speaks to his people in a lot of different ways. What else? God will test us and, and help us through different things and show us and grow us and sanctify us in different ways and sometimes they may not make sense to us but he, he always proves faithful. I think it was, I think Corey, I think it was your testimony where you mentioned that God doesn't waste anything. That, that is, that's another way of saying that, doesn't waste anything. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're we're not <laughs> we're not wired completely differently from um, those who went before us, and so the sin that they struggled with, we can see ourselves struggling with it. But like you said, it's we live on this side of the cross, and we have a, a better priest, better sacrifice, better blood, and we are blessed with the Spirit, and that that should give us a perspective that makes us realize we live in a, at a very blessed time, even with the heartache that that everyone will go through at some point in time. Um, we, we are very, very blessed to live in the time that we live. What else? I brought all of my notes from every study just in case this was quiet. Pretty dynamic and diverse. What else? Anything else? Terribly convicting section of scripture when <laughs> I was reading through that. And I offended everyone who wore sweatpants that night, like you said. So I don't think anyone's worn them since. I keep an eye on things like that. We have charts and stuff in our office, it's really important. What else?
Yeah, we're, we are so prone to forget what just happened. And so there's this community involvement and this community effort to recount the deeds of the Lord, just like actually we're doing right now to make sure we didn't miss something and we don't forget something because that is one of the means by which we stir one another up to love and to good works. Anything else? Yeah, a quick read through the major prophets will, will quickly <laughs> shine a, a light on that false message that when you become a Christian, everything's okay and nothing bad happens and it's not hard anymore and you're blessed and you have a pep in your step and no one will dislike you and nothing will be difficult. Man, the, the major prophets would, would uh, beg to differ. Their closeness with God oftentimes resulted in, in affliction and, and heartache and trouble and confusion, but God was always close and he always sustained them through it. And so... Um, it's good because it sobers us up to remember, hey, you know, we're not just snowflakes created to have fun while we're here, but there's, in fact, something much more involved, much deeper than that uh, going on as we carry out God's will. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Community and accountability and not taking sin lightly because you can see how entire communities just plummeted when there was no accountability and there, when there was no truth speaking, when they took their eyes off the Lord or when they held too closely to the wrong things. Anything else? Vision three in Ezekiel, it is not near as bad as the last one. That is for sure. Um, to, just in a review, a little background as we climb into, back into our last study here in Ezekiel, what was the 20-year period that Ezekiel prophesied during? It was the same period as Jeremiah, but what, what, two, what main event fell in the middle of the two 10-year periods? Yeah, the fall of Jerusalem. Ten years before and after the destruction of Jerusalem, while they were in Babylonian captivity, is when Ezekiel was prophesying. That's when the Lord came to him in these three visions. So, what was the first vision? Yeah. Yeah, uh, there, there was this figure um, that, that God appears to them um, where were they when, when he appeared to them? In exile. By, does anyone remember which canal? The K-Bar. The K-Bar canal. That's right. That's the way that they said it back then. The K-Bar canal. 
you can be sure of it. No, it's the K bar. Um, and so they were at the K bar canal, and here the Lord appears, and He reveals Himself to them in a way that is different. It is otherworldly. He's showing what about Himself? What does God reveal in this crazy vision? What, what were some of the details of the vision? He can move in every direction at the same time. No one in here understands that. Like, there's, we don't have a parking place for that thought. We don't have anything to reference that to. To be someone who is perfectly wise, sees all things, perceives all things, who can move in this direction and then need to go in that direction and be able to do so without stopping going in that direction and then do that all the way around. Okay. That sounds awesome. I have no idea what that means. We have no parking place for that thought or for that picture. So what is God revealing to, to us about himself just in that little detail about being able to go in every direction at the same time without stopping and going in the direction that you're originally going to change? Unfathomable. Outside of the bounds of physics. Not limited by the things we are limited by and altogether different. What were some other details that stuck out about when God showed up in that first vision? It was in Ezekiel 1, if you... Wheels with eyes. eyes, Lots of wheels, so lots of movement, and lots of eyeballs, so lots of sight and vision. Remember, they were tall and awesome and covered in eyeballs. Okay, awesome. Still don't fully know what that is, but it gives us a a certain um, insight into understanding what we don't understand. Is that helpful? (laughs) Um, So God appears to them in the the vision. What does God... Uh, reveal in the second vision. What, what's the second vision that he appears to them in? Yeah, his presence leaving Der- Jerusalem. It's God's departure from Jerusalem and his people. And what is it that causes the departure? Yeah, idol worshipers, terribly immoral. I'm not going to say the W word, but we, we used it a lot last week. It was terrible, terrible. What, um, what did God reveal about himself in that movement, that vision, that departure? What did he reveal about himself? He's a just God. What else did he reveal? Yeah, he's a faithful groom, even though he has a faithless bride. The modern day, or he's like Hosea, more like Gomer. What else? What did God reveal about what he likes and what he doesn't like and what he'll do in certain scenarios? He requires obedience. What else? What is he saying about his presence? They were terrified about losing Jerusalem. They were terrified about losing the temple. 
And what he was saying to them is, you should be terrified about losing my presence because your sin is what is driving me out of the tabernacle, out of Jerusalem. You see this, this ascension where he just kind of goes and goes and goes because of their sin driving him out. And they're so worried about these, these carnal, earthly, temporal things, and they're holding them so tightly. And they made the mistake of holding them so tightly that they thought they were holding on to God, which... When in fact, at the time, they thought they were holding on to God by holding on to Jerusalem, the temple, they in fact had turned from God completely and let go of him and in fact allowed him to be pushed away by their sin. And so God reveals that sin is a serious thing. And his presence is more important than the carnal things and the temporary things that we will hold so tightly to. And he, and he showed the importance of that by removing his presence. Tonight's vision is far more encouraging. It's a vision of God's coming and the promise of paradise. A vision of God's coming and the promise of paradise. And I'm so encouraged that we get to end on this vision, that we get to end our Wednesday night study on vision three and not on vision two, because there's such encouragement in it. It's so um, so uplifting. Um, before the vision is revealed, it's, it's in chapters 40 through 48, and before we get there, what we see in the chap- few chapters preceding it is things begin to take a completely unexpected turn given the content of the rest of the book. So look at chapter 36. In chapter 36, verse 22, I want you to see what God says to his people. And and a couple questions I'm going to ask after I read this passage are why would God offer what he offers and what is his motivation for doing so? Why would God offer what he offers and what is his motivation for doing so? Specifically, is it mercy, is it grace, or is it something else? Those are the questions we're going to look at after I read these verses, 36, 22 through 28. We've just gone through a number of prophecies against the shepherds of Israel, against Mount Seir, against the mountains of Israel, um, where the shepherds were caring only for themselves and not for the, for the flock. And here um, he, he expresses concern for his holy name, and he says in 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, so Ezekiel, you say this to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you... I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Oh my goodness, is that not different than what we engaged in the second vision last week? He was out. He was on his way out. He wanted Ezekiel to see it from the inside, going, seeing this wickedness of the people and more wickedness. And everywhere he moved in the tabernacle, wickedness to the east gate to the wickedness. And then he takes off. And here we see this like pretty massive blessing. What are some of the things he says he's going to do for his people in those verses? 
Wash them clean. We know how filthy they are from the second vision. What else is he going to do? He's going to wash them clean. What else? Give them a new heart. That will come in very handy. We know how wicked their hearts are from vision two. So he's going to wash them clean, and he's going to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. So that they will what? What's the point of that? So they'll worship. What else is he going to bless them with? The Spirit. And what's the Spirit going to cause them to do? Walk in his statutes. Now, could we have a more stark picture of a completely unable and undeserving group who has changed so radically by means completely outside of themselves? This is a great example of seeing what depravity is and how massive of a blessing it is for God to step in and do anything about your depravity, to work in any way to help you, to give you the spirit, to give you a new heart, to wash you clean. We've got these, these amazing, um, significant, um, almost opposing looking pictures of the same people and the difference between where they were and where they're going to be is God. It's not anything they did. It's God. So my question here, why would God offer renewed hope for a disobedient people? Why would God offer renewed hope for such a disobedient people? What is the motivation for his movement? To vindicate his name. So is it mercy, grace, or something else? Yes. It's a good answer. We'll go with Key's answer. I like Key's answer. Yes. There's certainly things that are merciful in there. There's certainly movement that would be owing to grace, but, but it is something else. The motivation for God's movement and why God would offer renewed hope. Such, I mean, real, I mean, what, the first time I read that verse after hashing through the first two visions, I wept. I just sat there and wept. I, I went through vision one, and you see him appearing to them and, and their horrible, depraved state. You see vision two and the absolute wickedness of their idolatry. And then just a little after that, you get to, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you. I will bring you into a land where you're blessed and we have enough to eat. And I will sprinkle you clean. It is amazing what he is doing here. And what I want us to see is that he is doing it for the renown and the sake of his holy name. What does that mean? He's doing a lot of amazing things to a lot of very undeserving people, and he's doing it for the sake of his name. What, in your own words, what does that mean? Kind of tricky, huh? I'm allowing more silence than normal because I kind of want us to think. Mm-hmm. So there's a motivation to make sure that there are those who will proclaim his holy name. Say that again. Okay. Yeah, that he would provide a way from such wickedness to have a heart of flesh. 
Yes. There would be a lot of prophecies unfulfilled if he just let all of them die. Sort of like the flood. If he killed everybody, where would we be now? So what does that reveal about the difference? They're going to come through the walls. I'm hearing it here. I'm hearing it over there. I'm glad they're having fun. Um, uh, What does that reveal about the difference between God's concern for our glory and God's concern for his glory? Yeah, he knows he deserves the glory, and he's going to get it. What I'm getting at here is I think it's good for us to remember that something significant happens when God leaves their presence. When God left their presence, that was a very significant thing. And not only were they affected, but I want us to see there that God was affected. We don't have this distant God who who looked at them and said, you guys are sinners, I'm out, losers, and leaves. But we have a God who, in fact, himself was affected to such a degree that he says, I'm about to act. I've seen what y'all have done. Everyone's seen what y'all have done. The, whole, the nations have seen what y'all have done. And I'm about to act for my holy name. I wonder, are we aware that in our actions the name of the Lord is at stake? Oftentimes we will think about our sin in terms of, if I'm good, God will be pleased with me. And if I'm bad, God won't be pleased with me. And I think this is a a piece of scripture that's kind of difficult. It comes in the form of a vision and a very difficult book that I feel like it reminds us, it should remind us, that when we sin, don't forget that the name of the Lord is at stake. Don't forget you're representing someone. Don't forget that you're called to be an ambassador. Don't forget, according to Romans 12, that your life is to be a life sacrificed, a whole life sacrificed for the glory of God. And so it's not just a matter of acceptance. And a lot of times when we think of our sin, we just think in terms of acceptance or even maybe even not even that deep. Maybe it's just in terms of, well, God's not as pleased with me today because I sinned, and, well, he's going to be more pleased with me today because I did some good things. But when we sin, we misrepresent our God. We sh- as image bearers, we show the wrong image, and it is confusing. And he's saying, my name will be renowned in the nations. He's not just saying, I want y'all to understand my name. He's saying, this whole world, every knee will bow. They will see how great my name is because of what I'm doing. And he, it's so important to him. I want us to see that's so important to him that he starts off by saying, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's for the sake of my own name. A lot of times we, we are only, only worried about him acting for our sake. God, this is what's going on. I need you to act for my sake. This is what's going on. I need you to act for my sake. And I wonder, should this text temper our prayers even, where we would pray and say, God... This is what I want, obviously. This, I'm going to let my request be made known, but the point here is your name, the renown of your name, the goodness of your name. So do as you see fit. You consider how Christ prayed in the garden. He said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from my mouth, but your will be done, not mine. Because that was what was most beneficial for the name and the renown of God. And a lot of times that will mean sacrifice. That will mean heartache. That will mean something other than what we had planned but we have to remember that in our sin, in our heartache, in anything that is even remotely undesirable, it is the goodness of God that should be most important. And when we pray, we should pray thinking about the renown in the name of God. So this next part, are we aware that in our actions the name of the Lord is at stake? And then I want you to see how this is accomplished. This is weird. 
chapter 37, verse 1. So he's saying, I'm going to make you new, I'm going to give you a new heart, and then he wants to exemplify and show how he's going to do that. And 37 says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. A lot of you have studied this. Look at the details as we study it again. A valley full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So if there were very many bones there and they were very dry, what do we know about what's happened there? A lot of people died and it wasn't yesterday. So we don't have like people kind of moaning and groaning who might be able to rally. These are dry, dead bones. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know... (laughs) That's a funny answer. I mean, when you think about everything that Ezekiel has seen thus far and his answer is, um, that's a good question. You know the answer to that, God, um, which is a great answer. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. What did God just say was going to happen? He's going to resurrect their bodies. How? He's going to recreate them. With what? Word. Word. So the claim here is in this valley of dry bones, the Lord's going to speak a word, and then things are going to start happening to the bones, and they'll be covered in skin and sinews. Real quick, when I don't know a word, I just say it boldly and hope that no one else knows it. Does anyone know that's the right way to say that word? S-I-N-E-W-S. Is that right? See, I knew someone was thinking about you back there looking it up. Yeah. Shoot the elephant, the sinew elephant. Um, so um, he, he has just claimed something um, remarkable is going to happen, and, 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 it's, and it is the means by which he is articulating how he's going to put a new spirit in such a sinful people. I will lay sinews upon you, cover you with flesh, and, and then look at that last part. And you shall know that I am the Lord. A recurring theme in Ezekiel. Verse 7. So I prophesied. As I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Now, first of all, every one of us would be completely freaking out at this point. That's bizarre. A valley of dry bones. Okay, God, I'll do what you said. I, I, that's, that's what I am. I'm a prophet. I'll do what you say. You start saying, you hear a little bit of movement, a little bit of movement. This bone from over here connects with that bone over there. Turns out they were buddies in a past life, and then, the, and, then they get, and then all of a sudden these bodies form, these skeletons form, and then sinews begin to form, and then flesh begins to form, all while he's sitting here talking. Okay? Uh, that would... That would floor any of us, obviously, after the rattling. Uh, I looked, um, behold, sinews on. uh, Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. 
Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Okay, so what do we start with? A valley of dry bones. And what do we have now? An exceedingly great army. And what caused it? The word of God and the breath of life. Okay. Then he said to me, in case we don't get it, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. What I want us to see that God does here, before we move on, the condition of the people is they feel as though their bones are dried up and their hope is lost. Sometimes God will take your hope from you. Your wrong hope from you. Do you understand that? Sometimes God will take your hope from you. Your wrong hope. Their hope was in the wrong things. And so they felt dried up. They felt brittle. They felt unable. They felt practically dead because the thing they were holding on to so tightly and putting their hope in was the wrong thing. It was the wrong hope. So there are times where God will take your hope from you. The wrong hope. There are, there's a hope that endures forever that exists only in Christ, which we'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to see there are times where he will take your hope from you, that thing you were holding on to so tightly because it was wrong. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. What did God just promise his people? Resurrection. There we go. And I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall, what? Know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. So just to be clear, let's, let's get a few details. Speaking in terms of metaphor, symbolism, and anticipation, what is significant about this valley of dry bones that we could maybe learn even about ourselves and about those who went before us? What's significant there? What is our result in our sin? What is our condition? Death. Okay. What is the hope from that point? Is there any hope for one who is dead in their sin? Not by ourselves. Okay. Is there any hope outside of us? Okay. And what is that? Jesus. Fantastic. I mean, you read the tea leaves. I mean, I'm not even there yet, and you're all over it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, um, in this particular text... Key, um, in this particular text, um, it is the hope comes in the form of what? What happens? What does God do? He breathes into us. Remember that every bre- with every breath you take, every morning you get up, remember it's a borrowed breath. That's how it all started. That's how it was with Adam. This is very indicative of things that happened in the garden. Here, you're a first, I'm going to make you out of a pile of dirt, and then I'm going to breathe my breath into you. It's a borrowed breath. Every breath is a borrowed breath. And God spoke a word and breathed, and we went from being completely hopeless and dead in our sin to what is the result? A what? An exceedingly great army. 
an exceedingly great army. Not just one person who's changed, but an army of people who are now changed. And not just changed, but they are exceedingly great. So, then the vision comes of the new temple. Look at 40. 41 through 4. It says, In the 25th year of your exile, this is that final main vision, um, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th day year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze and with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon what I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. What I want us to see right now is that given the experience that Israel has had thus far, how do you think they would receive? This is a word Ezekiel's going to sit with him and say, God took me to this place and this is what I saw. And he starts talking about restoration and a new temple and a new priesthood and even measurements for how how it's going to look and what it's going to be like and how God's going to be central and present again. How do you think Israel would be responding to that? Would they not care or would they listen with great intent? Exactly right. They would listen with great intent. Much like you're doing. Um, so, given that Israel has experiences thus far, they would probably be very attentive, very, very eager expectation to hear, okay, what rebuilding? We didn't even do anything. And look, look, things are being made better. And look at 43, 1 through 5. 43, 1 through 5 says, Then he led me to the gate. And this, this is a, a great summary batch of verses for this whole eight-chapter um, uh, vision of... God's coming in the promise of paradise. And then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up, And brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Aren't you glad it didn't end with vision two? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. From this point would come a long list of blessings that go with the presence of God. God's renewed presence with his people and God's renewed rule is massively significant and beneficial to his people. So much so that there's even a, it's so significant, there's a river that comes out of this new temple that, that flows and in fact blesses other people. It's this picture of an overflow of blessing because of God's presence. The temple vision was to highlight a restored relationship of God with his people. One commentator I was reading said, really Ezekiel is just a big picture of God reintroducing his people to himself. Taking them away from the things that were distracting them from him and saying, hi, I'm God. <laughs> reintroducing himself. So the final verse of the book is fitting. Turn to 4835. 4835 says, The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The book of Ezekiel leaves us with a picture of God forever with his people. 
That's a sweet vision. The book leaves us with a picture of God forever with his people. And Dever notes Ezekiel, in a sense, is, in a sense, the Old Testament equivalent of the book of Revelation, especially given Revelation's closing visions of God, God's judgment, and a heavenly city where he is, again, eternally with his people. So, in closing, I want us to see how it is that God will restore these, uh, these sinners to himself. There have been hints throughout the whole book. This is our third week in Ezekiel. It's a difficult book, but there have been little hints throughout the whole book that will explain to us how God is going to restore such sinners to himself. Because some, there may be a part of you sitting there thinking, man, that second vision showed some pretty wicked stuff. How is he going to do this? How can those kinds of th- sins be overlooked or ignored? How can he in his justice even consider restoring the temple not because of anything they did. And so what I want us to see is that Ezekiel has shined a, a dim light on the answer throughout the book. So let's go pick up a couple little details that we may or may not have seen along the way in closing. Look at 4, 4 through 8. Ezekiel 4, 4 through 8. Remember in our first study we talked about how Ezekiel was to do some really weird stuff to explain some really weird truths from God who himself proved to be very weird as we looked at him comparing to ourselves. And so some of the things he did, you remember his wife died. God took away his wife, and he wasn't allowed to weep, and he had to stay a certain way to show what they would do when, he, when, when God took away their tabernacle from him. And here is one of those weird things that he was supposed to do as a prophet, as one who was close to God, as one who heard directly from God. And in 4, 4 through 8, it, it starts off, and the chapter says, And you, son of man, so he, he's calling Ezekiel son of man. And in verse 4 it says, then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I will assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah." Forty days I assign you, a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm barred, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. To be clear, what is Ezekiel going to have to do for God to communicate what he wants to communicate? How long is he going to lay on his side? Yeah, about 13 months. Over a year, 390 days. He's going to lay on his side, and what's he going to be bearing on the other side? The punishment of Israel. And when he's laying there, will he be able to shift it all? No. He'll be corded down. This is, I mean, can anyone sleep through the night without turning over? Anyone here do that? Probably not. Can you imagine the discomfort, the pain, the looking toward the siege and prophesying against the city while it's going on? And then when that's finally done, good grief, 390 days on my side, what does he do next? 40 more days for the sins of Judah on the other side. So, what we have here is one called the Son of Man, 
And the Son of Man symbolizes the bearing of sin on his body when he lies on his side. Now turn to 1662. Ezekiel 1662. Sixteen's that really rough chapter that we looked at last week. In 1662, God says, after calling them out on the wickedness and the vile nature of their living that was not conducive to the character of their God or his namesake, he says in 1662, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So first we have a son of man bearing the sin of the people on his side. And here we see God promising a time where he will make atonement for a very faithless Israel. Now finally look at 34. Chapter 34. Chapter 34 is the chapter where God has corrected um, and called out the shepherds for caring more about themselves than they care about the flock. They were, they were far more concerned about their own safety than the safety of even those they had been given care over. And God calls them faithless shepherds. And then in 23 through 25 of chapter 34, look at what he says. And I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and even sleep in the woods. Why is that promise significant? What did he just promise? Why is it significant? How did their shepherds do in leading them? Poor. And he's saying, your shepherds did a terrible job. I'm going to give you one shepherd that will never, never fail you. So we have these three things. The son of man bearing the sin on the side, God promising atonement, and the promise of a perfect shepherd that will not fail the people the way the others did. So go ahead and turn over to John 10, John chapter 10, and this is what we'll close our semester of study with John 10 verse 7 John 10 verse 7 so Jesus again said to them truly truly I say to you I'm the door of the sheep and all who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them I'm the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Here in John 10, we have a sweet fulfillment of the prophecies of Ezekiel, where in Christ, we have a better shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and doesn't neglect them, bearing our iniquity on his body. To be clear, by laying down his life on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. By doing that, he brought peace. And by doing that, he brought forgiveness for the sinners who wanted to be done with sin and knew they could do nothing to forgive themselves. Only through Christ can we be reconciled to the Father. It may be like, really, that's what we're ending with? Yes, we're ending with Jesus. We're going to end our study reminding ourselves of the importance of Jesus Christ and the wonderful nature of the gospel that he has given us freely, not by our own work. My prayer for us is that we would never, in all of our studies, and all these notes starting just in January, and all the time spent in the Word, and all the time spent in discussion and reflecting, my prayer for us is that we would never, in all of those things, and all the working through the Scriptures, that we would never outgrow this remarkable reality. I pray that as we study, we would continue to be eager to get to the part about Jesus. I pray that the Gospel would always be fresh to us. And because of what Christ has done, that the name of the Lord would always be taken into account with every action and every word, that we would not just view our actions and words as how we might be in God's standing, but that we would take into account the importance of his name, that it is not misrepresented. And finally, that we would be eager to show the nations the greatness of our great God, just as God was eager that the nations would see him the way he wants to be seen. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that as we study through Ezekiel, we have three visions where you show up and you are present with your people when they don't deserve it. You're present with your people when they're not in the place they think they need to be to be present with you. I'm thankful for the third vision tonight where we see you promising restoration, where we see you promising an eternity with you. I'm thankful that there is a city that each of us as your children will dwell in eternally known as God is there. Lord, that is, that is paradise. That is an eternity of joy. That is heaven, is the presence with our great God. My hope is that as we read and study these things, is that we would hold fast to Christ and not look to anything else for hope and that we would help each other to do that, knowing that your presence is of utmost importance, and in Christ we are blessed with it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.